and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So this past, uh, this past week, uh, I don't know if you heard the Dalai Lama was hospitalized uh, with a chest infection. And upon hearing it, the uh, office of the Chinese foreign minister stated, the reincarnation of the Dalai Lama must comply with Chinese laws. That was, that was their statement on the Dalai Lama being hospitalized. So it's absurd on, on multiple levels. Um, first is that, you know, in the words of Monty Python, he's not dead yet, right? Uh, in fact, they released him from the hospital. He's doing fine right now, the Dalai Lama. You'll be thankful for that. So that, that's good. That's good. The second part is this. If, if someone is considered so spiritually excellent as to be the reincarnation of the Dalai Lama, that person is never going to bend the knee to a government so corrupt to persecute Christians and followers of Jesus and followers of Buddha and, and multiple other religions. It's just not going to happen. And so clearly, the statement is not meant to be a theological statement. It's meant to be a, a power statement. It's meant to be about authority and control. But here, here's the kicker. Spirituality is about authority. It's what Palm Sunday is all about. As followers of Jesus, uh, we, we don't believe in reincarnation. Uh, one of the things that Jesus spoke against often was, was works righteousness, that you obtain your own righteousness, you obtain your own salvation, and reincarnation is just another version of works righteousness. So in reincarnation, uh, if you're a good person, if you work hard, then you reincarnate at a higher level. And if you know you're not such a good person, you don't work all that hard, you reincarnate at a lower level. And this is one of the reasons, there's lots of reasons, but it's one of the reasons that poverty is, is so rampant in India today. Because there's not a whole lot of motivation to help someone who's suffering if really they're suffering for their sins in a previous life. You kind of just let them suffer for it. And Jesus is not about works righteousness. He's not about giving us what we've earned. Jesus is about giving us what, what he's earned. And on Palm Sunday, he states that he's the authority to do that. Because spirituality is about authority. And so let's work through our Palm Sunday text together. It says this. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord has need that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away back. Going back. Thanks, Zach. All right. So Jesus is traveling from the town of Bethany, which is on one side of the Mount of Olives. And they called it the Mount of Olives. We would call it the large hill of olives. It's not a mountain. It's a, it's a large hill. And on one side was Bethany at the bottom, next to Jericho, over north of the Dead Sea. And then you would walk up the Mount of Olives, and near the top was a little village called Bethphage. And at the very top, you could see this great view of Jerusalem. And you walk down, uh, uh, there's the Garden of Gethsemane is on that hill of Mount of Olives. You walk down that hill, down into the Kidron Valley, and then back up again to the city of Jerusalem, or sometimes called the city of Zion. 
And so Jesus is with his disciples, and they're making this journey. And he says to two of, two of his disciples, go on up ahead and borrow some donkeys. Which is a strange request, right? Go to somebody's house. You don't know them. Take their animals. And if they ask you what you're doing, just say this. The Lord has needed them. So imagine, you know, you're in your house, and there's two guys getting into your car. And you ask them, what are you doing getting into my car? And they say to you, the Lord has need of it. We will bring it back this evening. What's your response? So you can imagine those two disciples going, okay, all right, we're going to steal two donkeys, but bring them back. And if we get caught, we say, the Lord has need of it. That's the first issue of authority in the text. Will the disciples listen to Jesus? And they do. They go on the pet, they find a couple of donkeys, the owner catches them taking the donkeys, and they say, the Lord has need of it. And the owner goes, take them. Kind of cool. So a couple examples of people submitting to the Lord's authority, but the stakes get higher. This took place to fulfill, fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew is quoting an Old Testament verse. And it's a book of the Bible called Zechariah. Everyone say Zechariah. Zechariah. Okay, you don't need to remember that. But you can say it's cool saying Zechariah, right? It's a fun name. And Zechariah writes and prophesies around uh, 600 B.C. And he prophesies that the king will come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey. Now here's the catch, though. Zechariah 9.9 doesn't say that exactly. Matthew modifies it. Zechariah 9.9 actually says this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal, the donkey. Matthew changes the first line. Instead of saying, shout, Jerusalem, shout, daughter Zion, he just says, Say to daughter Zion. Why the difference? It's because at this point, the reader does not know how Jerusalem will react. Will they rejoice at their coming king? Will they submit to his authority? We'll see the answer very shortly. It says this, verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey uh, and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So here they are, they come to about Bethphage, they get the donkeys, Jesus, uh, they put the cloaks on the donkey, Jesus gets on the donkey, just like Zechariah 9.9 said, prophesied about five, six hundred years earlier. And Jesus is now riding down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley. 
It's estimated around this time that Jerusalem was a city of about 20 to 30,000 people. But for the Passover, it swelled to over 100,000 people. This place was packed with Jews from all over the Roman Empire who had traveled there to celebrate Passover. And they can't all fit in the city, of course, so they're camped out all around the city, many of them on the Mount of Olives because it has a great view of the city. And as Jesus is riding his donkey down, this large crowd starts celebrating. Now, many of this crowd had no idea who Jesus was. They're from Rome. They're from Greece. They had nothing about, heard nothing about Jesus. But the crowd, we guess, a lot of them were from Galilee. And this is where Jesus lived and did most of his earthly ministry. And they know Jesus. At least, they think they know Jesus. They know what Jesus has done. They know what Jesus has taught. And they sing his praises. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna literally means, it means save now. But by this time in Jewish history, it had a connotation of just like, hooray, you know? But it had that implication of, of saving and we still have that implication when we cheer people today, right? If you watch a basketball game, someone hits a three-point shot. You just you go nuts to win the game, right? And you go nuts. You're like, yeah, that guy saved us. He hit the shot to win the game. And the crowd shouts, Hosanna. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. This is around 30 AD. The Jews in Jerusalem had been under Roman rule from about 40 BC, 70 years. A 70 years underneath the thumb of an occupying power. 70 years of repression, 70 years of paying taxes to a government that the money doesn't go to you, it goes to someplace else. And the people cheering Jesus, the people shouting Hosanna, they were the children and grandchildren of people who used to be free. And they're hoping. Maybe Jesus is the answer. Maybe our freedom is through this person. Maybe he'll be our next king. Just maybe. And so they sing his praises. But how will Jerusalem respond? When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. When Jesus taught and healed and fed thousands, he did it mostly in the region around the Sea of Galilee. In fact, Jesus' home base was Capernaum, which is about 120 miles to the north of Jerusalem. So imagine about from here to about Denver. So in the car, not too far, walking, it's a long ways. But people traveled back and forth that distance all the time. 
And so people in Jerusalem had undoubtedly heard about Jesus, but most of them, the vast majority of them, had never actually seen Jesus. And here the crowds of Galilee saying, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, which is kind of like saying, this is Jesus, the guy from Fort Morgan lives next to the meatpacking plant. The people in Jerusalem, not impressed. And Jesus, as Matthew tells us, goes on, walks into the temple, and claims it as his. He walks into his house and sees people treating it like the mall. And kicks out the people selling stuff, kicks out the money changers, kicks them all out. In fact, the Gospel of John says he tied some cords together like a whip and drove them out. This is not Jesus, meek and mild. This is Jesus claiming what is his. And in no uncertain terms, he states to the people of Jerusalem, the temple belongs to him. and He's in charge of it. It's all about authority. It's so easy to look at this Palm Sunday and wonder what were they thinking? How could they not receive Jesus? How could they not even just give him a chance? How could they not submit to his authority? This is Jesus, the best person who ever lived. The Jesus who, who gives sight to the blind. Jesus who makes the lame walk. Jesus who teaches incredible things and does miracles. Jesus who water skis without a boat. Jesus who's the best person to invite to your potluck ever. And your wedding, for that matter. This is Jesus. How could they not accept him? I don't know the answer. But I think it went something like this. We're in charge, you're not. It's the same problem that's been plaguing us for centuries past since Jesus. Jesus, I'm in control, you're not in control. I'm in charge, you're not in charge. We all have a natural inclination against authority. I would say we all have a sinful inclination against authority. If you don't believe me, let's do a little experiment here. Okay. Raise your hand if you've ever been pulled over for speeding. It's okay, this is church. I'm raising my hand too. It's all we love you. We're all we're all broken underneath the cross. We love you. Okay, alright. Now Raise your hand if your first thought, your first thought was this. Thank God. I am so glad that someone loves me enough to hold me accountable for exceeding the speed limit because I really was going too fast. If that, was that your first thought? My, yeah. Yeah, we know we're, yeah. <laughs> we're going to confess your sin of lying later, okay? No. And that's, I mean, we're like, oh, man, are you kidding me? And our first thought goes somewhere else. Like, I, I have a really good reason. This officer is just trying to fulfill his or her quota. I am rebelling against authority. 
And that's what we do with someone we, we don't really know. It's different if we really know that person. So I still remember when I was in second grade, and we had this teacher, her name was Mrs. Killian. And Mrs. Killian taught us handwriting. She was actually the sixth grade teacher, but she would come down to second grade and teach us handwriting. We actually had to take that class, kids. We had to take handwriting class and got graded on it, all right? And so she would come and teach us handwriting, and I loved Mrs. Killian. She was my favorite. She'd come into class, and she was this little lady, and we thought she was super old, but really she just had grayed prematurely. She had all gray hair, and um, she's still alive today, and she looks exactly the same, right? And she'd come into class, and she'd smile, and she'd hug us kids, and she'd sing us songs, you know, and she'd be like, children, go where I send thee, how shall I send thee? I'm going to send thee one by one, one for the baby. Baby was born, born. We'd sing with Mrs. Killian, and then she'd have these prizes for us, these presents, and she'd call them hot pennies. She'd take her hand, and she'd say, okay, I'm going to give you a special gift. It's a hot penny. And then she'd do a little science lesson about friction, right? This is how friction works. It conveys energy. And she'd say, hold out your hand. Okay, ready? You have to hold it in your hand. Oh, I dropped it. Oh, no, it's not hot. Okay, come on, this. Right there. Right there. Oh, it's a hot penny. Right? We loved hot pennies from Mrs. Killian. And then one day, uh, something was wrong with her classroom, and so we went to the sixth grade classroom to do handwriting. And she said, this is uh, my classroom, and these are my students' desks. Do not grab anything from my students' desks. And I'm doing my handwriting, and my pencil breaks. And the kid next to me says, hey, that's my older sister's desk. You can use one of her pencils. I'm like, okay. So I grab in, I grab a pencil. And she caught me. And she raised her voice at me. And she said she was so disappointed in me. Because she told us not to go on those desks. And I cried. I cried. I failed Mrs. Killian. I had her four years after that in sixth grade. I didn't break a single rule in sixth grade <laughs> because I love Mrs. Killian. I submitted to her authority. Jesus. Jesus asserts his authority over Jerusalem. He uses his authority, not in power and dominion, but submits himself to a cross. And there he dies for you and for me. For your sin and for mine. For all those times when we refuse to bow the knee, when we refuse his authority in our lives. He grants a free gift of forgiveness. He rises from the grave to prove his authority, that he has the right to give forgiveness and to give life, that he has the authority to do it and offers it to you. At the risk of stating the obvious, this is much better than a hot penny. It's life. And he invites you to follow him. He invites you to acknowledge that he has the authority to remove your guilt. 
and, and all of us at one time or another live underneath uh, the guilt of our sin and it weighs us down. And we walk into church and we confess our sin and we still hold on to that guilt and say things like, Lord God, thank you for forgiving me, but this one's too big. Or Lord God, I know you forgive me, but not all of me. We hold on to that. We say, Lord God, you don't quite have the authority that I have. Because I know me. Jesus has the authority and the love to forgive you. You can let it go. You're free. As Jesus said, the Son sets you free. You're free indeed. Jesus has the authority to remove your shame. That guilt is uh, guilt is what we've earned because of our own sin, and Jesus has the authority to remove that. Shame is what we we live in because of someone's sin against us. And sometimes we hold on to that and make it part of our identity. That's who we are. Because someone else said so. And Jesus has the authority. He put it this way. He says, be born again. That you have a new identity because of what he has done for you. And by his death and resurrection, by claiming you as his, by, we say the word redeeming you, that Jesus redeems us, which literally means to, you, know, you redeem a coupon, right? You, you buy it back. He redeems you. And so shame is no longer an identity. And then he says these incredible words, go and sin no more. So that sin is no longer your identity either. That no longer do we claim my will over your will, Jesus. That my way over your way, Jesus. But rather, Jesus, your way all the time, all the way. And then Jesus says these incredible words after his resurrection to his disciples, to his church. He says this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In his authority, Jesus washes us, cleanses us, gives us a new identity, and sends you out to be his people, which is this huge and daunting challenge. And you will fail at it, and that's okay. Because he washes you back off and sends you right back out again. And if you're wondering, what does it mean to live in the authority of Jesus? I'll give you a few little hints. First one's this. That when you wake up in the morning, you ask this question. How are you messing with me today, Jesus? What are you up to in my life today? And then the second question. How are you working in the lives of the people around me? And how can I join you? 
Because Jesus loves you, which means he loves the people around you too. He loves the people in your family. He loves the people in your neighborhood. He loves the people in your school. Even that, that weird kid, he loves that kid. In fact, he really loves that kid. He loves the people at your work. He loves them all. Which means he's working in their lives too somehow. And he invites you to join him in that work. To be his person, to be his man, to be his woman of God in that place. Demonstrating uh, his love, his truth, his grace, his strength, his power. Because he has sent you in his authority. That you are his person. As a follower of Jesus, you walk in that power and that authority. Spirituality at its core is about authority. If you're here checking things out and you're not quite sure who Jesus is yet, I want to encourage you. Thanks for being here, first of all. Thanks for, for checking Jesus out. That's awesome. I want to encourage you to keep checking that out. What does that mean? And to read the Gospel of Matthew. And if you're here and you're like, you know, I, I kind of know I've checked Jesus out and I want to follow him, I want to encourage you to walk in his authority. The authority of his forgiveness in your life. To receive it, all of it, for all of your life. To walk boldly, lovingly, gracefully and powerfully in that authority. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, thank you for your work in our lives. And a lot of times, Lord, your, your work is in the hard stuff, Lord, the uncomfortable stuff, the places where you're challenging us to grow, the places where you're challenging us to release fear, where you're challenging us to release control, and Lord, where you're challenging us to just follow. Lord God, I pray that we might receive you. Lord, some here, perhaps the first time, some here, Lord, receiving you completely in their lives, that you're washing washing them fully with your grace, Lord God, that all guilt, Lord, is being removed, and that all shame is being wiped away. Please, Jesus. And that you're creating a new identity, Lord. As your woman, as your man, Jesus.